Well, let's return back to our ongoing exposition of the book of Hebrews. Uh, Hebrews, and we find ourselves in Hebrews chapter 6 again. You were here a couple weeks ago. Uh, We took, uh, you might say, a big picture uh, view uh, of verses 9 to 20. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 9 to 20, we kind of got up in the air and looked down and try to grab exactly what the author was saying, what the author was doing here. Uh, and if you remember, the, the main thrust of it was to get them out of their spiritual dullness, their spiritual laziness. This was their problem. Uh, this is why the writer of Hebrews picks up his pen and writes this letter. Uh, what he saw in them was, um, in, in in a couple words, spiritual laziness, and this has produced spiritual immaturity. And this is a problem. It's still a problem today. There's people in the churches, there's so-called Christians who find themselves just immature, and perhaps the reason why they're immature is because they're just lazy. They're lazy. In fact, you can see the word specifically there in verse 12. You notice in verse 11, he says, Be diligent. And why be diligent? Verse 12, so that you won't become lazy. Uh, You might have dull in your translation, but it's the same idea. And by the way, if you're remembering, back in chapter 5, verse 11, way back then when we were there, the discussion of spiritual laziness began uh, at that verse where he says, you have become too lazy to understand. It's the same word. Chapter 5, verse 11, you're lazy. And chapter verse 12, basically, you're lazy. Now, if you notice in verse 10 of chapter 5, what sparked this whole discussion of laziness is that he wants to move in his description of who Jesus is and why they, as converted Jews, need to press forward and not move back or go backwards to Judaism, is that they need to understand that Jesus is a priest. Now, he is a king, and he's from the tribe of Judah. Uh, For them, all priests come from the tribe of Levi. So how is that going to work? How is Jesus a king and a priest when he's from the tribe of Judah? Well, he needs to move on to give him some meat with this, and that is that Jesus is a priest, but he's a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And you can see that's where he's heading in chapter 5, verse 10. But he he can't go there just yet without some exhortation uh, that you're lazy. And until you snap out of it, you're not going to get this. In fact, when you come out on the other end, you'll notice there at the end of verse 20 of chapter 6, he resumes that conversation about the order of Melchizedek, and that goes right into the chapter 7. So this is what he's discussing. He's discussing that they are spiritually lazy, and because they're spiritually lazy, they're spiritually immature. And if you, if you think about it, those who are spiritually lazy and they're hearing, this is what they said, he said back in chapter 5, verse 11, you're going to be lazy in your living or in your obeying. Just, just chew on that for a moment. I don't know if it, most people put those two together. If you're going to be dull in your hearing, if you're going to be lazy in your hearing, most likely you're going to be lazy in your obedience. 
in your conduct, which becomes a major issue. And this is why he addresses it. There's laziness in the hearing and there's laziness in the conduct or the obedience. So all of that to say is, again, in a, in a sense, taking the big picture here, from 5.11 down to 6.20 is like an interruption. I, I want to talk to you about Melchizedek. You need to know who Melchizedek is and as it connects to Jesus as a, our high priest. But before I can talk to you about Melchizedek, I, I need to tell you that you're, you're lazy. You're spiritually lazy. And so, in that sense, 5.11 all the way to 6.20 it becomes bookends to this whole discussion of laziness. And you'll remember what we said about lazy. Lazy there, both in 5.11 and 6.12, in the original has this idea of no push. That's, that's the literal meaning. There's no push. There's no moving forward. You're dull. There's no drive in you. You're, you're stuck in a rut spiritually. Uh, I found it interesting that the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uses the same word there in Hebrews, uh, oftentimes in Proverbs, to describe those who are slow of heart. Someone who's slow of heart is just spiritually lazy. So again, just to summarize and make sure we're all on the same page here, from 5.11 to 6.20, he first tells them that they are spiritually lazy. Secondly, he, tell, he warns them the dangers of being spiritually lazy. And then he exhorts them to snap out of it and not to be spiritually lazy. That, that, that's from 5.11 to 6.20 down to three bullet points. He tells them that they're spiritually lazy. He then warns them, and that was verses 4 to 8, that warning. The, the warning of them being spiritually lazy and the consequences of, if they don't snap out of it. And then he exhorts them to wake up and not be spiritually lazy. Now, as I said, that's the big picture. I, I'm coming back to it this morning uh, because uh, that was a general outlook. I, I want us to come down on the ground and, and discuss it specifically. And specifically, I, I've got two questions that I want us to ask uh, and unpack this morning, and that will really serve as our outline if you're looking to take an outline. There's two questions, and the two questions are going to come out of verses 11 to 12. Have a look at that. He says there, now we desire each of you to demonstrate the same diligence for the full assurance of your hope until the end, so that you won't become lazy, but will be imitators of those who inherit the promises through faith and perseverance. The two questions I want us to ponder this morning are, number one, how do you become spiritually lazy and dull? If you are spiritually lazy and dull at the moment, how did you get there? I think we need to diagnose this a bit. And secondly, how do you return to that diligence or that zeal you had at the beginning? I mean, if you are converted, and he actually says that, I want you to return back to that same love and that same work that you once had. Be diligent to return there. Snap out of it. And as Christians, you know, if you are truly converted, at that moment of regeneration where there was life, uh, there was some zeal. There was some activity and alertness and hungering and thirsting and, uh, and real work and real love. And perhaps now it's not there anymore. The question is, why not? How, how, do, you, how do you go from spiritually... Busy to spiritually lazy. And then what are the remedies to that? 
That's what I want us to, to, to talk about. How does that happen? I mean, you're a Christian. You say you're a Christian. You truly believe uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ. You believe the gospel. You, you love Christ. You want to be obedient. But you, at the moment, find yourself dry. You find yourself just spiritually dry at the moment, dull and lazy in the means of grace. I mean, you're here, so that's a good start. But how do you get back to that diligence you once had? Again, reflecting back at your, your conversion. You're not there anymore. Why not, and how do you get back there? That's, that's really what I want us to discuss this morning. I mean, what happened? How do we recover? How do we get revived once again? Now, to help us in thinking through this, I want to bring into the discussion our good friend John Bunyan and Pilgrim's Progress. And if you haven't read Pilgrim's Progress, let me just throw in there right away. You need to read it. It's a wonderful book. Apart from the Bible, um, the Lord has greatly used that throughout the centuries. It's uh, greatly used it in my life. Just to understand the Christian life. And so... Uh, he, he speaks about spiritual laziness, and he speaks about it in a chapter that's um, titled Enchanted Ground. Toward the end of the book, end of the journey, Christian and Hopeful arrive at this place that Bunyan calls Enchanted Ground. Some of you might remember that, or at least remember the name. And I have to say, of all the challenges that Christian encountered in pilgrimage, this has been always has piqued my interest. I mean, he fought Apollyon, he went through the Valley of Shadow of Death, he... I mean, there's a number of things he did in his so-called pilgrimage, but this has always taken me back and, and piqued my interest for further study. Let me just read what Bunyan writes here. He says, Then I saw in my dream that they, Christian and Hopeful, went on until they came to a certain country whose air naturally tended to make travelers drowsy. So Hopeful began to be very lazy and sleepy and said to Christian, I am starting, starting to grow so drowsy that I can scarcely hold my eyes open. Let us lay down here and take a nap. Christian says, by no means, lest by sleeping we may never wake up again. Hopeful. Why, my brother? Sleep is sweet to the laboring man. We may be refreshed if we take a nap. Christian do you not remember that one of the shepherds warned us to beware of the enchanted ground? Therefore, let us not sleep as others do. Let us keep awake and watch. Hopeful. I acknowledge my fault. I had, had I been there alone, I would have slept and been in danger of death. I see that what the wise man said is true. Two are better than one. Your company been a mercy to me. And you shall have a good reward for your labor. Now, we'll stop there. Charles Spurgeon, who was a huge fan of Pilgrim's Progress, uh, reflecting on the church in his days and this particular event of Enchanted Ground, declared this. There are no doubt many of us who are passing over this plain. And I fear that this is the condition of the majority of churches in the present day. They are lying down on the settles of lukewarmness in the arbors of the enchanted ground. There's not that activity and zeal we could wish to see among them, end quote. And he wrote that, what, 150 years ago and could say it today. Now, what is enchanted ground? The writer of Hebrews notices um, 
his readers are on enchanted ground as well. What is enchanted ground? Well, enchanted ground, you could say, is a place that's located normally at the end of the pilgrim's journey. Remember, you're not on enchanted ground right at the beginning because there's zeal and there's life and there's there's a joy and peace and but later in life there's this waning of all of that and so Bunyan points out that this probably would come toward the end of a Christian's journey he also says it's a place that lies within plain sight of the celestial city so it's not that far from heaven it's a place that tends to give one a sense that they've already arrived it's a place that endears the pilgrim with a deceptively false sense of security. And it's a place where pilgrims fall asleep never to wake up. In other words, this is a very dangerous place, as it was for these people. When you're backsliding, when you're spiritually lazy, this is why the exhortation and the encouragement is to wake up. Because backsliding is only one step away from what? Apostasy. Now Christian in the story had already seen the dangers of spiritual sleep. He had already come across three characters named simple, sloth, and presumption. And at that time they were sleeping and they were sleeping not far from the cross. And in a real sense, the enchanted ground hides these three, these three dangers represented by simple sloth and presumption. Who is simple? Simple re represents complacency. Simple re represents complacency. There comes a time in the lives of Christians where they think that they have, all, have figured it all out. There's no need to study the Bible anymore. There's no need to hear any sermons anymore. They've arrived. For them, it's just a mere Christianity, and they live by that. They've come, they've come, as I said, complacent. They're no longer willing to delve deeper into the Scripture and sound the meatier understandings of truth. Again, that sounds like these guys. I will need to give you the meat, but you're not there yet. You've become complacent. Then there's sloth, and this perhaps is the best one that represents spiritual laziness. They're all kind of connected, as you can see. And these are folks who have been on the Christian pilgrimage for some time and have collected many battle scars, and because of that, they've grown weary. I'm just tired. They feel that they've done their bit, fought their fight, run their race, perhaps think that from here they can just coast on home to the celestial city. So simple sloth. And then there's presumption. And this represents, you could say, spiritual pride. They're presumptuous. They're proud. Complacency, complacency invariably always leads to a presumption on the grace of God. The presumptuous subtly embraces the false notions of once saved, always saved, and thus I can do whatever I want. They believe that God ignores their besetting sins, maybe their pet sins. They believe that God's grace won't allow them to fall. Many are those who 
thought their faith was secure only to discover their false presumptions had led them far from God. I mean, you remember the Apostle Paul's warning, let him who thinks he stands, what, take heed lest he fall. So all of that to say, when you're on enchanted ground it's, uh, and fall asleep, it's because perhaps of one of these reasons. You're simple. You see no need to study, understand, or apply doctrine. Maybe you're a sloth, and you see no need to do hard or costly things, or perhaps it's just presumption where you just settled. I've been there, done that. I don't need to do any more. Thus, the, the danger, really, of a chanted ground is twofold. One, it's spiritual complacency, and it's spiritual fatigue. You got that? You can boil it all down to those two. Spiritual complacency and spiritual fatigue. And again, I, I, this is where these Hebrews were at. And again, Bunyan is very pointed when he brings this out, that the danger of the enchanted ground lies in its subtle deceptiveness. Do not be deceived. How many times do you see or read the writers warning us of not being deceived? Why? Because no deception is more powerful than that when it engages the weak believer at the point that they think they are safe. And by the way, this can happen to individuals and it can happen to churches. I've seen, I obviously can see it with individuals. But I can see it at churches as well, where they, the church grows and it's big, and now they're having two services and three services, and like, oh well, well, if we're this big and we're this uh, three services, then this is the hand of God at work, and thus we must be doing something right. And you fall into that deception. You remember Keith Green, the uh, songwriter, put it in a song. Asleep in the light, he says, oh, can't you see such sin? The world is sleeping in the dark that the church just can't fight. Why? Because it's asleep in the light. Wonderful song. So again, here's the two questions. Questions that get to the heart of what the Hebrews are is asking for. One, how do you get onto a chanted ground? How do we get off of a chanted ground? That's, that's, again, we, we need to know this. If it's not you, we certainly know someone who is on enchanted ground. So we need to understand what the symptoms are and we need to understand what it means to be diligent to get off enchanted ground. A.W. Pink wrote a number of years ago, 1933 to be exact, a number of marks of what he calls religious declension. So spiritual laziness, backsliding. What does that look like? He says, it's when you are reluctant to join Christian conversation in the company of serious, heavenly-minded Christians and enjoy yourself best with the men of the world. It's when, number two, from preference, you are absent from meetings for prayer, confine yourself to Sunday meetings, are easily detained from them, and are ready to excuse such neglects. Number three, when you are afraid to consider certain duties seriously, lest your conscience rebuke past neglect and insist on fidelity now. Number four, when it is more your object, object in doing duty to pacify conscience than to honor Christ, obtain spiritual profit, or to do good to others. Number five, when you have an overcritical spirit respecting preaching, are dissatisfied with the manner 
as inelegant, too plain, too intelligent, or not according to some favorite model, or with the matter as too doctrinal or too perceptive, or when you complain of it as too close or are suspicious of personality. Number six, when you are more afraid of being accounted strict than, uh, than of sinning against Christ by negligence and practice and unfaithfulness. Number seven, when you have little fear of temptations and can trifle with spiritual danger. Number eight, when you thirst for the approval of men of the world and are more anxious to know what they think of you or say of you than whether you honor the Savior in their sight. Number nine, when scandals to religion are more the subject of your censure than of your secret grieving and prayer before God and faithful endeavors for their removal. Number 10, when you are more afraid to encounter the scorn of an offending man uh, by rebuking sin than of offending God by silence. Number 11, when you are more bent on being rich than being holy. Number 12, when you cannot receive deserved reproof for faults or are unwilling to confess them and justify yourself. Number 13, when you are impatient and forbearing towards the frailties and faults of others. Number 14, when you... When your reading of the Bible is formal, hasty, lesson-wise, or merely intellectual and unattended with self-application, or when you read almost any book with more interest than the book of God. Number 15, when you have more religion abroad than at home, when you apparently fervent when seen of men, but languid when seen only in the family or by God alone. When you call spiritual sloth and withdrawnment from Christian activity by the names of prudence and peacefulness, while sinners are going to destruction and the church is suffering declension, unmindful that prudence can be united with apostolic fidelity and peaceableness with most anxious seeking of the salvation of souls. When under the chastisement of providence you think of more of your sufferings than your deserts and look more for relief than purification from sin. When you confess but do not forsake sin. When you acknowledge but still neglect duty. I'll stop there. You get the point. Now, in the hearing of that, if that sounds like you, then you're on enchanted ground. And so the question for us is, how did you get there? How did you get onto an enchanted ground. I mean, if you know you're on it, if you know you're drowsy, if you know you're dull, if you know you're, you're lazy, how did that happen? Just, let, let me just give you some thoughts here. I just jotted down, and, and you could have come up with this list yourself. But it could be a number of things. First of all, when you come back to the, the Hebrews, perhaps the, the, the number one reason they found themselves going backwards was per persecution. And that's real, and it's still real today. Persecution will make you withdraw unless God strengthens your faith or someone comes along and helps encourage you to move along. And remember, we said there's persecution from the state and there's persecution and really pressure from the family. It's just too much. I, 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 I didn't sign up for this, maybe you said. Maybe you didn't count the cost. And because of that, another real reason people find themselves on enchanted ground is discouragement. Just the, the, the providences of life, the trials of life, they're, they're discouraged. And if they, don't, if, if they don't handle it well, then the discouragement then turns into despondency and 
they don't handle it at the despondency level, it turns into depression, and if they don't handle it well at the depression level, it becomes what? Despair. And that's why you need to fight it back at at least the despondency level. Discouragement is part of life. Pride. Presumption, as we've just said, could put you on enchanted ground. You're thinking you, you arrived. And again, presumption is self-deception. Remember Obadiah 3a? When the prophet Obadiah is preaching to the Edomites, he says, your presumptuous heart has deceived you. Whenever there's presumption in the heart, it becomes a, a matter of deception. If you want a good text on presumption, you don't have to turn there. It's Deuteronomy 29 and verses 19 to 21. Let me read it for you. Those who hear the warnings of this curse should not congratulate themselves, thinking I am safe, even though I am following the desires of my own stubborn heart. This would lead to utter ruin. The Lord will never pardon such people. Instead, his anger and jealousy will burn against them. All the curses written in this book will come down on them, and the Lord will erase their names from under heaven. The Lord will separate them from all the tribes of Israel to pour out on them all the curses of the covenant recorded in the book of instruction. They thought they were, they were oblivious from the curses. Amos talks about those who think they're oblivious from the day of the Lord. Amos 5 talks about how there are people there who think that, you know, they're out uh, on their way home and they escape the the snares of a a lion and then the jaws of a bear only to find themselves in their house bitten by a snake, all along presumptuous thinking that they're, they're okay. And the point is, yes, the day of the Lord is coming, judgment is coming, but it's coming to you unless you repent. Perhaps the best verse on presumption is by uh, the lips of our own Lord when he says in Matthew 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and do many miracles in your name? And I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. Presumption. Self-deception. Listen, wherever... Faith looks outward to God and relies on him. Presumption, on the other hand, will turn inward and find confidence and assurance in self. Presumption. And and then just uh, adding to my list, there's idleness, which could be seen as complacency. You you can head head onto a chanted ground thinking, "Uh, I'm okay. Uh, I'm not busy. There's no work to be done and there's no interest in doing the work to be done. You remember, that's how David got himself in trouble. Remember the armies were out at war and here he is, the king that should have been out at war and he finds himself idle. Thomas Brooks, the Puritan, says this, idleness is the time of temptation. An idle person is the devil's tennis ball tossed around by him at his pleasure. End quote. Of course, there's worldliness. There's a a love of the world, you see that with Demas, you see that with Judas, and you might have other people you know of that they were here for a while, but just the love of the world pulled them out of this place. Love of pleasure. Prayerlessness, lovelessness, busyness, sometimes that can be 
uh, a, a way of getting us onto enchanted ground. The, the, the man is so busy at work, he doesn't discipline himself for godliness. The wife at home is so busy doing the activities of a home and raising the kids, she doesn't set aside time to be with the Lord. Young people may be so busy with school activities that prayer, worship, and good works and Bible study are neglected. Even pastors, for that matter, might get so tied up uh, with meetings and administrative duties that they don't take time to spend with the Lord, and thus sermon preparation is just a just just becomes a duty instead of a spiritual exercise. You remember Jesus warned about this. He warned about the seed that would go into the ground and it's, there was initial joy and it started to sprout up and then what? Weeds came up and cares of the world, the anxieties of the world choked that seed. So happens today. Someone once said, if we desire a healthy spiritual crop, we may need to weed out some things in our lives. How about friendships? I, I've seen over the years bad friendships Bad friendships will, will, will take you to enchanted ground. Bad company corrupts good morals. Bad friendships. Uh, among the hindrances to progress in true religion is bad companions. That's one of the things I love about Pilgrim's Progress. How did you get from the city of destruction to the celestial city? Well, uh, Christian not only had the grace of God in his life, but he had friends. He had faithful and then he had hopeful. Covetousness. Covetousness. That, that, you start coveting. This might be under the same category of worldliness, but there, there's things that you covet. You might find yourself on enchanted ground. How do you get yourself out of it? Contentment, of course. Meditation of God's providences. Well, lastly, we could say sin, and that... that that's everything that we've discussed. But if you want to be a bit more specific, besetting sins. There's besetting sins, uh, pet sins in your life that, that you're just not forsaking or not having victory over. You'll find yourself on enchanted ground. John Engel James, a minister in the 1800s, wrote this. Besetting sins are powerful hindrances to Christian progress. Lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily besets you, said the apostle. In the case of most people, there is some one sin to which either from their situation, constitution, taste, or other circumstances, they are more powerfully tempted than to others. Satan knows very well what in every case this is and skillfully adapts his temptation to it. He is an expert angler and never chooses his bait or throws his line at random. Independently, however, of him, the very tendency of the heart is in that direction. That one sin, whatever it is, while indulged, will hold you back. You cannot make progress in holiness until it is mortified. Even its partial indulgence, though it may be considerably weakened, will hinder you. Study then your situation, circumstances, and constitution. You cannot be so ignorant of your past history, your present situation, your constitutional tendencies, your experience, your failures, your resolutions, as not to know what it is which, in the way of temptation and sin, you are most exposed to. You must... You do know in what you have most frequently wounded your conscience and occasioned to yourself shame and sorrow. It is an unsanctified temper. That's a question. Is it an unsanctified temper? An impure imagination, a proud heart, a vain mind, a taste for worldly 
comp- uh, company, a proneness to envy and jealousy, a love of money, a tendency to exaggeration in speech, a fondness for pleasure, a critical spirit, prone to backbiting. Study yourselves. Examine your own heart. You must find out this matter, and it requires no great pains in order to know it. It floats upon the surface of the heart and does not lie hidden in its depths. There, there is your danger. As long as that sin, be what it may, is indulged, you cannot advance in the Christian life. Other sins are like unnecessary clothing to the racer. Besetting sins are like a ball and chain around the ankle. End quote. Again, I think he's right in saying that I, this is what the writer of Hebrews had in mind when he comes in chapter 12, verse 1, where he says, let us throw off everything, everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us. So, look, those are just a a few. There could be more, but those are the possible ways that can get you on enchanted ground. And the question now is, how do we get off? How do we get off? I trust that you don't want to be on there. Hopefully you understand the dangers of it. So how do we get off? I mean, you say you're spiritually lazy, you find yourself on a chanted ground. How do you wake up and move forward? I mean, you come back to Hebrews chapter 6, you notice in verse 11, the writer of Hebrews says, you've got to be diligent. Notice he says, now we desire each of you to demonstrate the same diligence. And that word diligence Obviously, it's the opposite of laziness, where there's no push. Diligence is to put some push in there. The Greek means to hurry, to hasten. I know you're asleep, so wake up. Get going. Get a grip. You might have a different translation from diligent. You might have make every effort or seek earnestly, to strive eagerly after, to promote zealously, to urge, to exert. It means all the same thing. It's the same word if you go back to chapter 4.11 where he uses it in saying, let us then be diligent or make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall into the same pattern of disobedience. It's the same word over in 2 Peter 1.5 where Peter says, for this reason make every effort or be diligent to supplement your faith with goodness and goodness with knowledge. It's the same word Paul uses in Romans 12, 11, exhorting the Romans, do not lack diligence and zeal. Be fervent in your spirit. Serve the Lord. And I love the New Living Translation. They put it simply, never be lazy in your work, but serve the Lord enthusiastically. Isn't that good? That just gets to the heart of it. Never be lazy in your work, Paul says, but serve the Lord enthusiastically. But you say, I'm lazy, and I'm not serving the Lord enthusiastically at the moment. I need some diligence in my life. I need some effort in my life. What's going to propel me out of my dullness, out of my drowsiness? How do you get there? How do you get there where there's um, a skip in your step, there's joy in your heart, there's peace in your mind and zeal in your work? And, And you notice what he says there in verse 11. It is a diligence that results in what? Full assurance of hope. When you're on enchanted ground, there's going to be some doubt. When you're on enchanted ground, there's going to be some uncertainty. But 
But if you want that full assurance of hope, you need to put some diligence in it. You need to make some effort. How do you get there? Well, back to Bunyan and Pilgrim's Progress. I found this very interesting, how how Bunyan um, gets them off of enchanted ground. Now then, Christian said, to prevent drowsiness in this place, let us have a wholesome discussion. Did you catch that? Let us have a wholesome discussion. With all my heart, said Hopeful. Christian, well, where shall we begin? Hopeful, where God began with us. Please start. And I'll just stop there. I find that very interesting, as well as biblical. But did you pick up and catch what they needed to do to get off of Enchanted Girl? What did they need to do to, to wake up? Christian says, let us have a wholesome Discussion. In other words, he recommends the stimulation of good conversation. Let's talk to one another, he says. Let's encourage one another. Let's discuss theology. Let's discuss our conversions. Let's discuss the goodness of God, the works of God. I don't know if you picked up in Psalm 77 when I read it earlier, verses 11 and 12. And remember, he's in a bit of a, 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 a despondent spirit, maybe depressed. But he says in verse 11 and 12, and this is how he got himself out of it. He says, I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. I will also meditate on your work and talk of your deeds. Maybe this is where Bunyan got the idea. Or maybe he got it from Hebrews chapter 10. You remember in chapter 10, verses 24, 25, he says there, and let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but, and here's the, the, the encouragement, by encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. Don't, don't be like those who don't come to church, that don't gather. What you need to do is come together and when you gather, encourage one another. The, the, the verb is parakaleo, which means to come alongside and encourage. Again, talk to one another. Talk to one another. Spiritual talk. Same idea, by the way, is back in Malachi 2.16. This is one of my favorite verses. In Malachi 2.16, it says, At that time, those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. Those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord took notice and listened. So, coming back to Christian and hopeful, it was conversing with each other. The Puritans had a name for it. It was called conference. We don't use that word anymore, but the Puritans, when they got together, whether just two or three or the whole church, it became a conference. And part of that conference was talking to one another. Encouraging one another in the Lord. One author put it this way. While they are thus musing, this is Christian and hopeful, singing and talking, the fire burned and the danger grew less and less the more they became interested. Such conversation as that of Christian and hopeful is full of awakening and edifying power. End quote. Spurgeon recognized the same thing. He says, Christians who isolate isolate themselves and stand alone are very liable to lie down on the settle or the soft couch and go to sleep. 
But if you talk much together, as they did in the olden times, you will find it extremely beneficial. Two Christians talking together of the ways of the Lord will go much faster to heaven than one alone. And when a whole church unites in speaking of the Lord's loving kindness, verily beloved, there is no way like that of keeping themselves awake. Catch that? So what do you talk about? What what did they talk about? And, And it's interesting. The longest part of the story follows this. Because the longest part of the story is their conversations. And you say, well, what do they talk about? What do we need to talk about to to help us out of our dullness and laziness? And here again, I just jotted down a few things. Number one, talk about your relationship to God. Talk about your relationship to God. That now, as a believer, he's what? He's your heavenly father. He wasn't your heavenly father before you were converted. Talk about your conversions. Talk about that time when... You recognize that you were a sinner and that you were without hope, alien from God, and how you were burdened with sin. And maybe talk about the providences, how you got to that point, about you know your mom or or maybe a good friend or a brother that led you to Christ. Share each other's testimonies. Again, talk about your relationship to God. Talk about His sovereignty. Talk about His providences. Uh, re- reflect on, and that's what the psalmists do. They reflected on what God did in the past. Because as you see what God did in the past, even in the past in your life, you'll, you'll, you'll rem- remind yourself of His goodness. You remind yourself of His love and His benevolence. Talk about God until the fear of God is once again burning in your heart. Maybe start there. Secondly, talk about your relationship with Jesus. Talk about him as precious. Talk about as Lord. Talk about him as Savior. Again, that he died on your behalf. We've been learning that in Bible study. That that, that should fire up your bones. The fact that Jesus, the Son of God, the second member of the Trinity, became man in order to die on my behalf. Remember Paul in Galatians 2.20. You love me. And gave himself up for me. How can you be spiritually lazy and find yourself on enchanted ground when you, when you think about your Lord and talk about your Lord? Talk about him as the king of your life. Remind each other that you are slaves. Remind each other of your union with him. I mean, do, do, a, do a study of all the times that the Apostle Paul uses that two-letter or, or two-word phrase, in him, in him, in him. You are in him. And what that means. Then talk about your relationship to the Spirit. Uh, talk to, talk about Him like Jesus did, as a helper and a comforter. Exhort each others to walk in the Spirit and not grieve the Spirit. Thank the Spirit that He leads you in all righteousness. Remind each other that is, if you want power in your life, that's where it's going to come from. It's going to come from the Spirit. You can't do anything apart. From Christ, and what Christ meant there is you can't do anything apart from the Spirit of Christ. I mean, if Jesus Himself was dependent upon the Spirit of God in His life, how how much more do we need it? Talk about your relationship to the Word of God. This isn't just black ink on white paper, these are the words of the living God. In them we find eternal life. 
this is food for your soul. If you're hungry and thirsting after righteousness, where, where are you going to be satisfied? It's going to be satisfied in the words of Scripture. Help each other with Bible meditation. Help each other with Bible memorization. Maybe actually read and study the, the Word together. Here's another thought. Talk about your relationship to the church. Remind each other that salvation is not just to Jesus, but to Jesus' people as well. You, you understand that. We've talked about this, and certainly Brett's going to bring this out in his uh, talks on the doctrine of the church, but this is one thing most Christians don't get. Yes, you're saved to Christ, but you're also saved to Christ's people. You're in covenant with Him, but you're also in covenant with one another. This is why we call each other brother and sister. You remember the story, uh, the, the illustration of one pastor visiting a, a member of his church who hadn't been at church for a long time. They were, and because of that, there was a noticeable dullness about him and laziness, coldness as it came to the things of spirituality. And as they're talking on this winter night and the fire's blazing, the pastor goes up and grabs the thongs and grabs a coal out of, or even a piece of wood out of the fire and he pulls it out and he just lands it there in, on the, uh, in front of the fire. And they both notice how that coal with all that heat that was in the midst of the fire coming out slowly cools and the heat resides. And he says, that's you. When you separate yourself from the church, you're going to go cold. But in the church, that's where the heat is. And that's the means of grace to keep you on fire. Wayne Mack, beloved professor of mine, makes this very point in his commentary on Pilgrim's Progress. He says this, One of the most important things if we are to avoid going to sleep on enchanted ground is to have the fellowship of the saints where we are edifying, building up, and ministering to one another. I cannot emphasize enough the importance of having godly friends. These are friends who have a heart for God who will be honest with you and will comfort you, but who will also rebuke you and hold your feet to the fire. End quote. And again, as I said earlier, there's no such thing as a Christian who doesn't go to church. When he says in Hebrews 10, 24, do not be like those who don't go to church, he's not saying in a legalistic way you have to be at church every Sunday, but for them, that was a pattern. You might be sick and not here. You might have a, a, a work schedule where you're rostered on on a particular Sunday. We're not legalistic about this. But if you are free to come on a Sunday morning to worship, whether you feel like it or not, you need to get yourself here. It is the means of grace. You need to discipline yourself for godliness. And I, I talk to those who do wake up on a Sunday morning that don't feel like coming, but once they're here, guess what? They are so thankful that they're here. So talk about your relationship to God. Talk about your relationship with Jesus. Talk about your relationship to the Spirit. Talk about your relationship to the Word. Talk about your relationship to the church. Here's one. Talk about your relationship to, the, to sin. You do have a relationship to sin. As we talked about in the catechism, you were 
born in sin, original sin, and we sin because of that nature. But as Christians, we need to help each other not to sin. And in your relationship to sin, you need to remind yourself that you're pardoned from sin. There's an acquittal. And then there's an awareness that you're still a sinner. And there's, Romans 7 says, a, a law of sin, a principle of sin that still resides and he hates it. Which is the attitude. So you move from acquittal to awareness to attitude and then an activity towards sin. And that's what? Mortification. Talk about all that. Talk about your relationship to sin. Often churches talk about your relationship to God, maybe, hopefully, but, but your relationship to your parents, your relationship to your wife, to your husband, your relationship with your co-workers, and all of that is, is good, and the Bible speaks to that. But when was the last time there was a sermon that was, hey, let's talk about your relationship to sin? Because that's probably the closest relationship that you have. Acquittal, awareness, attitude, activity. And then... Lastly, in my list, and this is just seven, could be more, but talk about your relationship to the world. Remind each other that the love of the world and the love of the Father are at odds with each other. Remind each other that this is, this is not your home. You're just a pilgrim. You're just, you're just passing through. Can I say, if you're struggling with anxiety, and anxiety that moves you to... Work more hours because you're anxious about, you know, more money. Um, first of all, Jesus says, don't be anxious, right? He says, put your trust in God. Your heavenly Father knows. But a lot of times that, that anxiety comes or, or that pressure, if it's not anxiety, to make more money is because, well, you got to keep up with the Joneses. You want that nicer car and that bigger house and clothes that are brand names and and we work ourselves hard to get there but you understand that that's all going to be burned up one day i'm not saying don't have a nice car i'm not saying don't have a nice house but don't put any stock in it jesus says put your treasure where in heaven put your treasure where your heart is and your heart should be in heaven. Remind each other in this sense that you've been crucified to the world and the world to you. Paul says in Galatians 6.4 I'll tell you what, you need to remind each other to be sober minded, to be on alert and watchful so you don't end up on enchanted ground. The Puritans were huge on this. Be watchful so you don't be deceived. John Owen, in fact, says this, Watchfulness is a universal carefulness and diligence exercising itself in and by all ways and means prescribed by God over our hearts and ways, the baits and methods of Satan, the occasions and advantages of sin in the world, that we be not entangled. Be watchful. And maybe under this I'll also add, Remind each other the purpose of trials, because we're we all going to face trials, right? Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. And it's not a matter of if, but it's a matter of what? When. There's people on TV that tell you when you become a Christian, everything's hunky-dory. You won't have any problems in your life. You'll be healthy, you'll be wealthy. They're lying to you. You understand that. Understand the purposes of trials. Trials are come. Don't kick against them. 
Don't, don't go backwards because of them, like the Hebrews. Embrace them. Understand that God is behind all of it. He's behind the good and the bad. He works all things together for good, right? And what is that good? The purposes of trials is to sanctify you, to mature you, to refine you. Encourage each other in that. Talk about that. Well, we'll stop there. The point here is get off a chanted ground and get out of spiritual laziness. And that's the message that the writer of Hebrews is telling us, uh, telling the Hebrews here, but he's telling us as well. It is a very dangerous place to be on and it's a very dangerous state to be in. What was his model? Who, who does he keep referring to as an example of those who were on enchanted ground and end up dying on enchanted ground? The Hebrews. Hebrews of the Exodus never entered the land, never entered God's rest because of their spiritual laziness. So that's the warning. Be diligent. Be diligent once again. That's going to be the means to get your spiritual engine firing back up on all cylinders. Otherwise, John Owen rightly says, slothful and lazy souls never obtain one view of the glory of Christ. Let me say that again. Slothful and lazy souls never obtain one view of the glory of Christ. Let me um, close with the words of Christian. Just when he and Hopeful begin, uh, begin to talk themselves off of enchanted ground, Christian breaks out into song. This is what he sings. When saints do sleepy grow, let them come hither and hear how these two, two pilgrims talk together. Yea, let them learn of them in any wise, thus to keep open their drowsy, slumbering eyes. Saints' fellowship, if it be managed well, keeps them awake, and that in spite of hell. Father, we thank you for this morning. Perhaps there are a number of us here who are on enchanted ground. May this be a wake-up call to them. May they understand they might be the sloth, presumption, simple. Lord, we see but enlighten our darkness. Lord, we hear, but cure our deafness. Lord, we move, but quicken our dullness. Lord, we desire, but help our unwillingness. And Lord, we believe, but help our unbelief. For our good and your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.